Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Brooklyn's. Don't you just love the look on Alan's face when uh, he realises that Portillo's got his coat caught on the, uh, on the hand throw? Absolutely priceless. Thank you for that, Alan. It took some finding. Uh, as ever, welcome to Brooklyn's this evening for this very special evening, as we say au revoir to Alan Wynn. Uh, a very warm welcome to our guest. It's great to see you, and I hope you enjoy the evening. For those who don't know me, I'm Steve Clark, and I have the pleasure and privilege, along with the team, of organising and hosting these events on behalf of BTM. So tonight is very much a time to have a little bit of fun at Alan's expense, um, at the same time celebrate his achievements as part of this incredible success that the museum has had in the last 15 years. Normally, when we run these events, Simon and I have a conversation about how we can get the best out of our guests and how we can get them to talk. I think it's a bit the opposite tonight, is how we get Alan to stop talking. <laughs> we have a plan, though. Our catering partners have promised they'll serve breakfast if it all goes wrong, OK? <laughs> we are only joking, of course. So, firstly, would you please welcome your host for the evening, journalist and broadcaster and great friend to the museum, Simon Taylor. Next, a familiar face um, around um, is our Vice Chairman of the Trust and former Concorde pilot, Mike Bannister. Thanks, Mike. And finally, bringing up the third of the interrogation panel, uh, will you please welcome to the Daily Telegraph motoring correspondent, Andrew English. One person I've left out, um, ladies and gentlemen, man that needs no introduction, therefore I will. Um, I can now say this, the former director and chief executive of Brooklyn's Museum, that I affectionately call the headmaster. Will you please welcome Alan Wynn. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Steve has already told you enough for you to understand this is not the usual Brooklyn's talks that we do. We're here to say, well, it says au revoir, but I think that sounds a bit final. Um, maybe bon voyage to the man to whom Brooklyn's owes more than anyone, I think, certainly over the past two decades. It's no exaggeration that Alan Wynne has been responsible for a huge step change in the whole tenor of this place. We all know Brooklyn's, we all love Brooklyn's, but one of the things that Alan has done is to broaden the appeal so that it's not just old chaps who worship at the shrine of Bill Body and wish that Brooklyn's were still going. It's younger people who are also coming to learn about this place and to learn about aeronautical history and automotive history. We're going to hear about some of Alan's uh, achievements as the evening goes on. But we, who love Brooklyn's, have been able to enjoy the arrival of the Napier Railton, uh, the creation of the Brooklyn's Double 12, which is a great event, I think, uh, the emergence, of course, of the finishing straight from its slumber 
underneath the vicar's hangar, the new scoreboard. There's so much. And when I say that it's not just us old anoraks, I bumped into, completely fortuitously, um, a lady last weekend who is a school teacher, knows nothing about motorsport or motor racing or cars or aeroplanes, but she teaches four and five-year-olds in a school in Kew. So it's not right on the doorstep, but she brought her class of 24 and five-year-olds to Brooklands. And she said it was absolutely marvellous because it really worked for these kids going around the, uh, going, going around the museum. And they understood that it was a historical place and that people had been racing cars and flying aeroplanes here for so long. And what I love about that is that not only is it getting new people into the museum, but of that class of 20 people, perhaps one, two, three of them will continue to be enthusiasts and in 30, 40, 50 years' time, they'll all be sitting here. Now, Alan is retiring as museum director. Uh, I have a feeling that he won't quite be able to shake the dust of Brooklands off his feet. But there are so many facets to his life. Tonight, even with Steve's offer of breakfast, we can only really scrap the surface. Well, to, to help us, we've got two men up here who can look at two facets of Alan's life. We're going to hear from Mike Bannister soon. He's the deputy chairman of our trustees, of course. He's the last man to land Concord at Heathrow. And he was able to work with Alan to realise Alan's dream of bringing Concord to Brooklands. But first, we're going to hear from Andrew English, renowned motoring journalist, motoring correspondent, of course, of the Daily Telegraph. And, Andrew, you were a colleague of Alan's for a lot of his journalistic career. So I'll, I'll invite you to uh, kick over a few anecdotes with Alan about that period of his life. Um, well, actually, I have a, a, a bit of a, 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 a shock for you all that Alan was uh, arrived in 1974 in his demob suit with half a crown in his pocket on a secret mission um, to uh, determine the state of technical journalism in the UK. Um, tell me about it. What did you think of technical journalism at that time? I came here on a, on a travel scholarship uh, from, from uh, New Zealand. Uh, and yes, I was, uh, uh, my chosen topic was to investigate technical writing in the English daily press. And your findings? There wasn't any. <laughs> <laughs> but you stayed anyway. Yeah, yeah, because uh, basically the scholarship paid for the airfare one way and I needed to raise enough money to, to, to get back. And uh, it's a reflection on my abilities as a journalist that I never got back. So you, you managed to get yourself a job as a fully trained engineer by then, but you got a job as a technical editor on uh, the consulting engineer, I believe. Yeah, I'd, I'd started doing a little bit of freelancing um, on engineering magazines uh, just to keep the wolf from the door and then um, the job came up on uh, the consulting engineer. I got it and that just opened an amazing door. Um, I just kept meeting more and more people. I was writing more and more and then yeah, the, the big thing, the big breakthrough came when I was um, hired to be technical editor of a brand new launch called Engineering Today. And uh, that, that was when things really started to move. <laughs> and that was uh, actually within uh, Simon's orbit. 
It was. Um, uh, yeah, we, uh, we, we were an offshoot of um, Haymarket and uh, we lived on the second or third floor of uh, Regent House next door to the Café Royal. Um, and uh, one of the great joys of that, of course, was uh, when you had to interview somebody serious, you could borrow Michael Heseltine's black and chrome office on the top floor, uh, which we did from time to time. Yeah. And uh, that became new technology, which is where we met. Yeah. Um, uh, that was the last Haymarket magazine in Soho, I believe. Uh, probably, yes. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> Yeah, not on the top shelf though. Um, yeah, but it was, uh, yeah, it, it was a it was a controlled circulation uh, weekly, uh, basically a management magazine for the uh, for the engineering industry, and it did brilliantly for a few years on the back of um, recruitment advertising, uh, and when the engineering industry had a downturn, so did it. And um, uh, then Michael decided it would be a much better tax loss than it was a magazine. <laughs> right. I should explain here that uh, I was uh, editorial gopher in a gap year of a, 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 a late-taken degree. Alan's uh, uh, said to me, well, you don't know you can, but you can write, and I will act as a referee for you when I... Um, uh, 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 when, when you go back to your finals and you'll undoubtedly pass his confidence in, in, in his staff was extraordinary. And by the time I, um, in 1986, uh, uh, brandishing a, a degree and in fact newly married, um, Alan had changed jobs. And I seem to remember ringing you. Um, you were at Commercial Motor. Yeah, it was one of those great things. Uh, as I say, um, uh, new technology... Um, suddenly became very old technology and uh, but I was really lucky in that I walked straight from uh, the job there to uh, the editorship of Commercial Motor. I'd been doing a lot of commercial vehicle coverage for engineering today and new technology and uh, I just literally, um, I, I had the, the new job lined up before I'd even had my farewell party at <laughs> Haymarket but one of the nice things about all that was of course that the directors of Haymarket honoured our redundancy terms and I emerged with a cheque large enough to buy the three-litre Bentley which is parked at the front door. Um, <laughs> Not the first of your lucky redundancies, <laughs> no, but we'll no, come back to that. <laughs> and, uh, and then, yes, um, uh, uh, I remembered you from, uh, from your days uh, uh, across the petition uh, in Haymarket and, um, yeah... And well, uh, you, you joined us on Commercial Motor. Well, you wisely didn't stick me on the news desk, and I became uh, 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 part of the road test team there. Um, but one of the features of Alan's career, I should say, is that he uh, acted as a sort of mother goose for a, a gaggle of, of young journalists who've, who he's brought on to, to do all sorts of things. And I was thinking of uh, Murdo... Um, Forbes Much, uh, myself, various others, including a ferocious uh, backbench, subbench. Um, do you feel, I mean, how, why did you, you do that? So few people bring on, uh, mentor young, young, young journalists, I won't say talent, but, um, uh, you know, what did you, you think about when you took these people on? Well, I think, I think the, the big thing was that um, there are people who are, I think, born journalists, it's just they don't know it. Um, and uh, there's people with incredibly inquisitive minds. And that was the most important thing. You know, um, uh, I've never met a successful journalist who'd done a media studies degree. Um, uh, you know, the, the, 
they are born, and I remember I mean, my, the, uh, the girl who uh, succeeded me as editor of New Technology when I became managing editor, Laura, was uh, selling car radios for, for Motorola and came looking for a, for a job with the recruitment agency downstairs, and they rang me and said, there's a woman here who could really do things. And I, I just recognised people who were going to go places in, in journalism because they had this inquiring mind and shared my excitement at being able to explain things to other people. And that was the great joy I got out of journalism was, you know, there, it was this, this fantastic 30-year um, engineering and other degree that I did where instead of writing dissertations, I just had to write a progress report every week um, and get other people excited about it. And that's that's what's kept me going, and there's a large amount of what we've ended up doing here. You know, it's the thrill of being able to explain, get people to understand what's so important, and uh, that's what I recognised in you. Well, thank you. Um, I should reveal a certain amount of the editorial comings and goings at uh, Commercial Motor. They're very happy years, and. Uh, but the, uh, the, the one thing that would uh, incur the wrath of Alan, and you knew this by the sort of banging of hands on the hips and, and a sort of growling noise, was any, anything from the, uh, the, the, that deviated from good grammar. Uh, there was an obsession with good, correct grammar, um, and, and more than that, a sort of um, arguing from the general to, to the specific. You see, I can't get it right even to this day. Um, we had to concentrate on news to the extent that all quotes had to be in the present tense, which made for some pretty difficult stuff when you were writing about historical events. And, uh, and the other thing is an extraordinary argument we had once in the, uh, in, the, in the office, and I still don't remember it except Alan producing the incredible phrase, no one doesn't like a non-smart arse. I mean, are you still, <laughs> are you still a, 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 a particularly uh, concerned with grammar? At, uh, at yeah, uh, I'm, um, uh, the staff here at the museum know uh, uh, to, uh, to their cost and their peril the, the endless rewrites of, uh, of press releases and, uh, and position papers and applications and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I just cannot face, I can't face an email going out with a spelling mistake in it or, or a missing capital letter or whatever. Um, you then moved to flight. Uh, coincidentally, another magazine, like Commercial Motor when you arrived, celebrating its 80th, um, it said into Flight International, I think, on the masthead, I remember meeting up with you several months in where you revealed to me that actually flight was very far from international and one of your first jobs might be opening offices overseas. Tell me about what you, you, you came across when you got to flight. A flight was the sort of amazing time warp, you know. Um, uh, Aviation is one, one of the most technically advanced industries of all and you think, you know, well, Michael tell you, you know, people are really you know, at the cutting edge all the time. And I walked into this amazing Victorian uh, thing. I hadn't realised there were two floors above where I'd been working. And the staff were still most of the editorial staff were still handwriting copy and giving it to a uh, to, to a secretary. There were, there were so many editorial secretaries in that place, I just couldn't believe it. And, and the secretaries would type the copy, and then it would go back to the, to the so-called journalist to correct, and then it would be sent off, and it went through a very antediluvian production process as well. 
and uh, you know, the whole thing was just 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 back in the dark ages. And Flight International, uh, somebody, somebody joked at one point um, uh, you know, that they'd added international to the masthead, and now the flight aeroplane would sometimes be seen on the continent. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that was the challenge, um, because clearly um, the industry in the UK wasn't big enough to support a weekly news magazine, which it had been from the very beginning. And uh, so over the course of 14 years, we moved it from 66% of its circulation being in the UK to 66% being outside the UK. And uh, yeah, we had uh, five full-time overseas officers plus uh, other part-time officers. And one of my great joys was moving the production process to the point where writers all around the world were writing copy to fill pre-planned pages and proofreading their own pages electronically yeah. all around the world long before uh, the newspapers and other people had got to it. And um, and we also, uh, I'm still blamed for having turned flight into a bit of a uh, an airmail edition, which is what it had to be, because we, we created a guarantee that the reader and the subscriber in Australia would receive his copy of Flight on the same day that the subscriber in the UK did. Right. And uh, we moved heaven and earth and turned it into the lightest magazine. It's still, I'm sure, the lightest magazine um, uh, in current production, uh, but we could afford to airmail it around the world. Um, which and you went into, uh, you, you became a gamekeeper at that point. You went into publishing for I did, flight. yeah, yeah, I was... Uh, I, um, Following the Peter Principle, I was promoted up uh, just beyond the level of my competence and became the business manager uh, as publisher of the of the magazine. And uh, I'm delighted to say uh, we, uh, until 9/11 came along, we produced the uh, the biggest profits and biggest turnover that that magazine had ever had. And uh, it truly was an international uh, player. I was hugely proud of it. One of the things you did do, and I'm not sure whether your, your redundancy from flight paid for it, but you took your Bentley down to New Zealand, and knowing a few people who've done this, that must have been an enormous undertaking. It was an enormous undertaking, but it was also one of the biggest thrills um, that I've had in my life. You know, having grown up in New Zealand in the, in the 50s and 60s and learned to drive on gravel roads and on the uh, on the back beach at Nelson, um, and uh, driven, you know, competed in deeply inadequate motorcars and <laughs> motorsport on those gravel roads. To take my own vintage Bentley uh, back to New Zealand and drive it on those roads uh, where it was a real excitement. And the fact that we did a huge number of miles uh, uh, over three weeks um, and. Uh, introduced a lot of people from this country to the joys of, uh, of gravel motoring, which uh, a well-known ex-president of the VSCC described on his first day of the, the lap of the South Island we did in five days. And Julian leapt out of his car and said, this is fantastic, it's just like skiing in a motor car. Um, and, uh, and that was the thrill that we had. It was a re really magic thing to do. Um, at this point, uh, my, we, we in journalism almost wave goodbye to you because uh, you did accept the, uh, the redundancy. And, uh, and at this point, I hand you back to Simon because Brooklands came in. Yeah, it did. And I think the first thing I wanted to ask, Alan, was to what extent did the ownership of a Bentley, a vintage Bentley, which you obviously love dearly because you, st you still own it all those years later, is that what directed your attention towards Brooklands? I think it, 
It had actually started um, before that. I mean, I, f I first saw a vintage Bentley at the age of eight uh, on um, a, uh, an agricultural showground at Picton in New Zealand, and I just fell in love with the whole concept there. But no, the, the whole vintage thing, I couldn't afford a vintage Bentley until nice Lord Heseltine um, made me redundant. But I'd, I'd always been involved in old motor cars, and um, I, I got involved uh, with the Vintage Sports Car Club as soon as I got to this country. And uh, as a result of my writing a letter of complaint to the, uh, to the then president of the VSCC about the number of hours we were expected to do as marshals, which is what I was doing a lot of on a two-day race meeting in Alton Park, I was invited to join the committee of the VSCC um, uh, uh, to represent the views of marshals. And um, so there I was sitting on the, uh, on the board of the VSCC and editing Flight International. And the trustees here uh, decided that um, I, because I was involved in both motoring and aviation, I clearly wasn't biased either way. Mm -hmm. And therefore, Alistair Pugh was sent off to invite me to lunch, uh, the outcome of which was to be that I, was, I would be invited to be chairman of the Friends Association here. Um, and that's what happened in 1996. And was that a full-time job? I mean, no, no, that, that, that was just a voluntary so, job. So you were still editing I, I was editing flight. And, um, and you were still marshalling at uh, VSCC meetings yeah, in Alton Park. Uh, and, and trying to compete with the Bentley and yeah. do all the other things. The thing that went by the wayside at this point was learning to fly. Um, I, I, gave, I gave up the flying lessons because I just didn't have time and mm. spent 14 magic years flying other people's aeroplanes anyway. Um, but uh, yeah, that, uh, I, I became chairman of the Friends Association here and we started we even started raising money for things uh, here, including... Um, uh, we raised a good chunk of uh, money towards the purchase of the Napier Railton and mm. uh, building a new security fence and various mm. other things. Mm. But then it stayed like that um, until um, uh, Read Business Information did a bit of a corporate reshuffle in, at the tail end of 2002 and decided they didn't need as many publishers as, um, uh, as they then had. And I was one of the magic people who were offered money to go away. And, uh, so you were able to give the Bentley a service? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> amongst other things, pay off a bit of the mortgage and everything else. But for the first time, because I was, uh, for, for reasons of modesty such as tax efficiency, um, I, uh, it was suggested that I start taking my pension at that point. And that made it possible I could then afford to, uh, when uh, Lord Trefgan rang me and said, I understand you're looking for a job. Um, uh, come and see me in my club on Tuesday. Um, uh, and uh, the salary he offered me, augmented by a pension, meant that I could actually afford to come and, uh, uh, and take up the job here. Uh, now, at that stage, you knew a lot about journalism, you knew a lot about vintage cars, you probably knew quite a lot about marshalling. You didn't actually know anything about running a museum. I mean, your successor, Tamily, who I know is here, has actually worked in the museum business and it is a very specialised business. So you arrive here, suddenly you've got to take on this huge project. Yeah. Did you feel that you didn't actually know how museums ran? Did you, did you have to teach yourself from the start? I, th I thought I knew a bit because I had been uh, sitting on a, uh, a fundraising committee here. I'd been chairman of the Friends. Um, but, yeah, that, that was the uh, extent of my knowledge, and I'd been around a lot of museums. But um, 
the, the task that Lord Treff Garn and his fellow trustees um, gave to me was simply, look, the thing is, um, is really struggling, though he didn't tell me exactly how much mm. it was struggling, and it just needs somebody with enthusiasm to do something. Now, what did you have to do? How did you start? What okay. did you do? Um, well, um, in my first couple of days, I discovered two very important things. One, that there was literally no money in the bank, um, and we certainly didn't have enough money to pay the wages. And the other thing was that in two and a half week time, weeks' time, uh, the caterers were leaving um, because they'd handed in their notice it was a contract catering operation. And uh, nobody had bothered to point this out to me in the uh, weeks leading up to my arrival. Uh, so I never really had time to think about what I was going to do to, to, to run the museum. Because uh, clearly, we needed to do something about the money, uh, we needed to do something about the catering, and um, we had a couple of weeks left to finish an application to British Airways to, uh, to get a Concorde. Um, and all these things just had to be done. So I just arrived and uh, never thought about what the strategy was going to be or anything like that. We just had to get this thing um, you know, sort of over the next hurdle and then there were another hurdle, another hurdle, and the, there was just this great line of hurdles and there, there was no point in worrying about what was at the end of those. It was just, should we just get on and get this thing going? So I called in some favours on the catering front. Um, uh, we uh, made the revolutionary decision within a few weeks that um, it probably no longer uh, the right thing to be doing with a public attraction to have it closed on Mondays so that everybody <laughs> could have a rest. Um, and uh, and we, just, we just got stuck in. And uh, the amazing thing was that the, the staff and the volunteers just... I don't know what it was, but they just, they just grabbed this thing as well. And everybody... Just mucked in. Well, saving your blushes, you obviously proved yourself to be a, an inspirational leader. You got them all behind you. Mm. And looking back over 14 years, I mean, you say that you were just uh, jumping each hurdle as it came up and hit you. But looking back over 14 years, there has been a strategy, hasn't there? I mean, particularly, as I mentioned at the beginning, you've made the museum available to people like school kids who probably wouldn't have thought of coming here before their teachers wouldn't have thought of bringing them here. Yeah, I, I think and a lot of that just does come back to this thing. It's like with the Bentley. The biggest satisfaction I've ever had with the Bentley, far more than taking it to New Zealand even, was sharing it with other people, letting other people experience it. And with Brooklyn's, you've got this fantastic thing here. You've got the remains of the world's first motor, motor racing circuit. You've got the site that's produced more aeroplanes to this day than any other site in Europe. Mm. And it's this jewel waiting uh, for people to meet and to understand and enjoy. And yes, I did come with this thing that um, I don't understand, just the same as I don't understand why people keep paintings in bank vaults, I don't understand why you would have a piece of machinery that you wouldn't want to have running. Um, you know, if it's safe to run it you know, for, the, for the piece of machinery and for the people looking at it or using it, then you know, why won't you run it? You know, can't, can't we make this place active? Um, you know, there, there were some great events uh, running here um, already, but you know, what can we do to, to bring the place alive? Because uh, and, um, you know, 
one of my big things has been I've always had an aversion to line lineups of dead things in sheds. Yeah, yeah. and to, to me, you know, a bit of machinery only uh, is only worth something. It only means something if you can make it work. And I think wanting to get the stuff out, we started doing things like. Um, the car rides uh, in the school holidays, which is now this fantastic, um, the, the, there's this sort of mafia who run car rides here in the school holidays. And you know, they're, they're regularly doing 13, 14,000 car rides a year. Um, you know, and all these kids who've never been in an open motor car, never been in a car without seat belts, and the first time it happens to them, they're up at 37 and a half degrees at the top of the Brooklyn's banking. And we started off doing that with a couple of cars cars from the collection and my Bentley and one or two other people would bring their own cars in and we started doing that as a way of just, just letting people experience what it was like and then it started to grow and Graham Appleby and his team started buying cars specifically for the, mm. for the job and we were able to stop abusing the exhibits uh, uh, but, but it, it, it's all a part of letting people experience it. Well, your, your enthusiasm is, is absolutely clear. We, we, you've mentioned earlier that you managed to get the staff who were here, as soon as you arrived, you were able to get them to line up behind you. But another huge element of making Brooklyn's work is, of course, the volunteers. And Brooklyn's, as we all know, wouldn't work without the time that enthusiasts give. Presumably, that's also something that requires motivation from you. Yeah, I, I, you, you never uh, have enough time to spend time with all the with all the volunteers and the still volunteers who swear they've never met me. Um, uh, but yeah, I, and I think the the thing there is you you can't lecture them all. You can't you can't tell them what to do. That's the great thing about volunteering here that you're doing what you want to do. So you've got to make it something that they want to do. Uh, but I think. What I have always enjoyed is they've got the enthusiasm and it's, if you can find the time to go out and work with them and one of, some of my, my real enjoyments around this place have been going out and doing things with volunteers. You know, we've, mm -hmm. we've taken the Napier Railton to all sorts of weird places. You know, we're, we, took the, we took the Napier Railton to Pebble Beach in 2007. Yeah, and uh, the Doveys came as volunteers uh, with us, you know, and uh, and there we were. We had the we had the car out there. We've taken things all over the place, and the volunteers have been part of it. Volunteers have sat on the truck with me. They've, you know, we've we've pitched tents. We've done all sorts of things. And I think if you're willing to get involved, you know, I started here effectively as a volunteer, as chairman of the Friends, and just uh, and it's just a, an integral part. And and all the staff work as volunteers because they all work these stupid hours and come and work weekends and so forth and they, they get a day off in lieu. Yeah, so you come here and work 14 hours and get uh, eight hours off in lieu. You know? uh, so, so everybody gets, the, gets this thing about chucking stuff in. Another element of Brooklyn's, which may not apply to all museums, I don't know, perhaps it applies to the Tate Gallery, but you've got an incredible fabric around you fabric that's been here since 1907. Uh, quite a lot of it, as we all know, was built too quickly um, and probably without the right expenditure. And that has to be, as far as possible, preserved. These wonderful bankings, isn't it a big worry that gradually 
that is going to crumble and decay. How do you prevent that? Yeah, I, I, it, it is a huge worry, and this is my gift to Tamale, you know. I haven't done a lot of it, um, and she's going to have to. Um, yeah, uh, none of it was built uh, with the expectation it would still be 100, 110 years later. And, um, but but the, the big thing about it is, it is, as you say, the authentic stuff. And, and this is what does set us apart from so many other museums which are invented. You know, you know, you know somebody sets up a motor museum in his front living room or um, you know, you know, bungs a few aeroplanes on the edge of an airfield somewhere and they've invented a museum. But this is, the, this is where, it, it, where it happened. It's one, it's one of our watchwords. This is where it happened. It's authentic. And that's what makes it so important that it's not just the spirit, it's not the cars, it's not the aeroplanes. They're, they're all important, the motorbikes, the push bikes, all those things. But it's, it, it is the fabric. And, yeah, um, the banking was knocked together in nine months flat. Yeah. Takes longer to get a meeting of the planners these days than <laughs> to, 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 to build Brooklands. And it was built incredibly shoddily. Um, it, you know, it's built on lightly compacted earth bankings in part, unreinforced concrete, six inches thick. Um, the stuff on the banking was laid dry uh, because, because otherwise it would have slumped and there was no hydraulic formwork to hold it in place. So, so it, 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 I. Jerry built it, you know, uh, um, or 2,000 Jerry's uh, you know, all brought over from Ireland. Um, uh, the, the wooden sheds are the same. The, 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 uh, the, the clubhouse doesn't have proper foundations. Yeah, it looks nice on the outside. So all these things are there um, that need to be looked after. And yes, we need to save it. Um, we, we need to make sure that it doesn't crumble any further. Now, we've started, um, you know, the, uh, all of the buildings uh, now in use have been restored. Um, but the, the bulk of them are cheap wooden buildings. Um, and, you know, the motoring village buildings uh, need, uh, some of them need restoring again. You know, the, uh, the Jackson Shed was ready to be opened uh, the, the night before the great flood of November 2000. Mm. So it's less than 20 years ago that it was restored. Its cladding needs re replacing again. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, we've, we've done the finishing straight, but the finishing straight, you can already see we're using it, and it needs the annual maintenance that it was getting back before the war. Um, and we, uh, but the banking itself, uh, we haven't really tackled, and we need to. Yeah. Another way in which Brooklands is different from your average museum, if there is such a thing, is that it's a working museum. Things happen here, and it's not just a case of you making us all jealous because you get into the Napier Rails and then go rumbling up and down. But actually, there are great events coming, happening here. I mean, I mentioned earlier the Brooklands Novel 12 just as one. I mean, it uses a famous name of a famous Brooklands event. But you've created a very good motor sporting event there. So things happen here, but presumably that also takes its toll on the fabric. It does, uh, but again, you know, I, I've always said it's a bit like having a Victorian swimming pool. 
you can, you, you can paint it and leave it like it is with no water in it and say, isn't that wonderful? Yeah, yeah. It's a Victorian swimming pool. It doesn't actually mean anything unless you fill it with water and chuck people into it. Mm. And, uh, and you know, what's yeah. the point of having the Brooklyn's banking if you can't mm. drive cars on it? Um, and let people experience what it was. That, that, that thrill, you know, I mean, even Michael Portillo, you know, <laughs> tried to kill me by getting his fancy cufflinks caught in the hand throttle. Yeah, I, that's what brought it, uh, uh, brought it alive. It's, it's driving cars on the bank. And you have to live with that. And, yeah, we've, we've, had, we've had problems as a result, as, as you're, you're well aware, you know. Um, I... Uh, I was at the wheel of the Grand Prix de Large when um, uh, rod number eight decided to no longer be connected to piston number eight. Yeah. Um, and uh, <coughs> there, there's a massive rebuild uh, coming as a result. Um, but it's so important, I think, to have these bits of machinery alive, to have the fabric alive, you know, to, yeah. to have it being driven on, have it being... Uh, have it, you know, we, we have all these things. People keep falling down the banking when they, they, they want to walk to the top of it and then they always make the mistake of turning around and trying to walk back down and they fall over. Um, but, yeah, We've all done it. Yeah, and, and, and you know, people say, well, why don't you just ban people from, from climbing on the banking? The answer is you can't because that's what it's about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just standing there and looking at it, that's like standing and looking at uh, the 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 baker's house at Pompeii. You yeah. know, um, getting in there and baking a loaf of bread is what makes the difference. So, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Are you concerned, when you arrived, you said the coffers were empty, there was no money in the bank, and through ingenuity and effort, you've managed to turn that around. But all of the things you've just been mentioning are going to cost money. Are you concerned about where the money is going to come from? Is it going to get harder and harder to balance the books as time goes on? It's always going to be... What, what, what I'm proud of is that we've got it to the stage where the combination of admissions, the trading profits from catering and retail, and the phenomenal support of the members, yeah, um, you know, members' subscriptions and the trading profits made by the members put over £400,000 a year into the, into the running costs of the museum, which is absolutely amazing. But that combination pays for all the running costs and the routine upkeep of the place. Doesn't doesn't pay for improvements. It, pay, it does pay for some. You know, the director's office has just been repainted. Barnes Wallace's bathroom's just been repainted. We're, do, <laughs> we're doing some things out, yeah. out of regular income. Um, but we have to raise... Uh, money specially for all the capital projects and that is always going to be a concern because yeah it's becoming more and more expensive we're tackling bigger and bigger things so in, by the time we'd done the the aircraft factory and racetrack revival project you know, which was restoring the hangar and interpreting it as the aircraft factory building the new flight shed with its archive store and workshop and restoring the finishing straight that was nominally an eight and a half million pound project. We spent another half million on top of that, sorting out the electricity around the site, doing the new building for the Vimy, 
that sort of thing. So there was nine million quid went there. And you look at it and think, well, now we've got the really big projects to do. But on the other hand, what we've got is we, we now have a track record of being able to produce the most amazing results. And mm. when you look at it, I, I think if this was a national museum, you know, one of the uh, one of the things paid for uh, out of central government funding, they couldn't have done the transformation that we achieved on a mere eight and a half million quid. You just wouldn't get away with it because, yeah. because again, you know, we got all these things. You know, we didn't have to pay for for specialist contractors to come in and move the exhibits around and do all that sort of thing. Got a bunch of volunteers with a crane truck and forklifts and all Fantastic. that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, and exhibits restored by volunteers. Mm. You know, instead of having to pay some special conservator. But what we've done is we can pr we've proven that we can take a seemingly impossible task and do it and deliver it above people's expectations. Yeah. Now, if we can do that with a mere £9 million project, and, and one of my other big prides is, with the exception of uh, less than a couple of hundred thousand quid, we've paid off all that money. Now, yeah, that was huge help from the, uh, from the National Lottery. We're not necessarily going to get help to that extent again, you know, yeah. lottery funds dropping and all that sort of thing. But we've proven that you know, if we go out with a with a project to the funding community, we've got this fantastic track record and the proof that if we come up with a with a big bold idea, it's something that we know we can deliver. Well you talk about the track record. We've uh, talked mainly about the car side, but of course the aeronautical side, as you pointed out, has been every bit as important uh, as the car side to Brooklands. So perhaps this is a good moment to bring in Mike Bannister, uh, who can get you talking, I'm sure, um, about all the, uh, all the aircraft things you've done. I mean, Concord, which you both worked on together. Let's start with that. Thanks, Simon. I mean, my brief is to tease out the aviation side of you. I was going to ask you earlier on, what would you like to talk about? I knew what the answer would be. It would be that New Zealand beat England in the test series. So <laughs> I, I didn't go down that road. But you touched on something earlier on. One of the first things you encountered when you arrived as director, and wasn't it far-sighted of the trustees to appoint you, but one of the first things you had to deal with was it's only two weeks to finalise the application to British Airways for a Concorde to be here at Brooklands. With the benefit of hindsight, it is a total no-brainer that there should be a Concorde here. At the time, I was the other side of the divide uh, with British Airways looking at all of the applications that we had had worldwide to own and look after a Concorde. Um, we had seven aeroplanes to disperse and we had 88 really serious applications from across the world. What made Brooklands the one that we subsequently chose and why is it the right place for Concorde to be? Well, um, yeah, the, um, the well-rehearsed argument is um, the Concorde project, uh, the British end of it, was run from here under Sir George Edwards. Um, a third of every Concorde was uh, was built here. Um, you know, not only the forward and aft fuselages, but you know, the wiring loom was installed here. The other cockpits went away from here, completely stuffed, uh, you know, and ready to be rolled out um, uh, on the production line. So there was there was this really important thing that this was um, a. a, a the, the home of the of the Concorde project, um, but but it was also that um, we had here already um, most of 
an extraordinary, unique collection of aeroplanes. Um, you know, where, where else in the world can you see the, uh, the story of post-war civil aviation from Britain's first post-war airliner, the Vickers Viking, you know, a tail-dragger, piston-powered, unpressurised, effectively just a, a really ugly rebuild, rebody of a Wellington, you know, it's a fat, ugly pig of, a, of an aeroplane. But you start there with that thing, and we'd got up as far as the 111, um, you know, through the, uh, the Varsity, the Viscount, the Vanguard, the VC-10, uh, to the 111, and the thing that would cap it all off would be Concord um, and the extraordinary contribution of Brooklands to that post-war British and international civil aviation story and once we once we had a Concord we could then take that story from the unpressurized tail dragger piston powered Viking all the way up to the world's only supersonic airliner to enter real service forget the TU-144 carrying a few pounds of mail to Armata once a week um, and all of that story could be told with the products of this site, the products of this of the design office here. You know, the people who drew the windows of the Viking in 1946 drew the windows of Concorde, uh, uh, which first flew 23 years later. You know, there's that whole story there, and that was that was the compelling argument that that this was the place again where it all happened. You know, this was this was where you know Roe started off doing his flying experiments back in, in 1908 on the finishing straight. The very bit of finishing straight we've now uh, uncovered is where Roe was doing his, his early experiments here. Yeah, this is where the first loop the loop was flown in the UK. This is where the first air-to-ground radio uh, uh, was done. This is where the Vimy came from that flew to flew the Atlantic, flew to Australia, flew to uh, South Africa. Yeah, this is where the hurricane that arguably was the pivotal point and winning the Battle of Britain. This is where the, it first flew. This is where the Wellington first flew. This is where the biggest aircraft ever produced, uh, put into serious production in the UK, the VC-10, was designed and built here. So there was this phenomenal aviation story. You know, 18,900 aeroplanes had their first flights from here, more than anywhere else in Europe. And you know, Concord was the sort of, you know, it, it was going to be um, the, the icing on the cake. Um, and we felt the argument was utterly compelling. The, the trouble was that British Airways didn't have enough complete Concords. That's true. But uh, thinking back to 2003 when we were reviewing the applications, yeah. all of that appealed hugely to my pilot side. Yeah. Um, but my business side said, well, what about the business plan that Brooklyn's going to, got in place? So we looked at that and it said something along the lines that we anticipate an increase of about 35% of people wanting to go on board Concord and pay a premium to do so. And it'll probably be like that for about two years. And then we anticipate that it'll tail off and probably level out at something like 20% more. In BA, we thought that was rather ambitious and perhaps uh, a little bit bloated. How did it really turn out? Well, um, I, I think we must, have, we must have written a particularly compelling um, uh, piece to you because the the guarantee I made internally to the to the trustees because I was encountering some resistance 
uh, when it emerged that the only Concorde likely to be on offer to us was Delta Golf. And we'd been taken off to Filton to look at Delta Golf by Brian Mitchell, who was handling the nuts and bolts of the disposal, ostensibly to look at the possibility of moving a Concorde by road, because we had moved lots of aeroplanes. Andy Lambert and his team had moved aeroplanes all over the place to get them here. Um, and so we went down there on the context that we, we were going to look at um, uh, the possibility of unpicking a Concorde and moving it. Um, and I came back from there and told the trustees basically that it looked like if we were going to be offered a Concorde, it was likely to be Delta Golf. I just could feel it in my bones. And Stuart John, uh, who certainly knows his way around the, uh, the aviation industry, was adamant that we should refuse Delta Golf if it, if it was offered to us because it was such a mess. I mean, it was a completely stripped out Hulk. Um, yeah, no, no droop nose because somebody had bent Fox's droop nose at Heathrow, and so they'd taken Delta Golf's nose off. The tail fin was off. There were no engines, no undercarriage, no cabin interior, no cockpit. Yeah, it, it was it was a shell. The only interesting thing in it was the prototype of the hardened uh, cockpit door uh, uh, introduced post 9/11. That was the, the only real fascinating thing about this stripped out aeroplane. Um, and and I argued with the trustees that if we were allowed to have this thing and we could put it back together because there was the indication we could get some bits out of the out of the BA stores, we could I could guarantee that we would get a ten percent increase in visitor numbers here. As it turned out, when we finally unveiled uh, Concord here, having brought it here in five in five major bits and 26 truckloads of spare parts um, <laughs> that, that formed what, what is now Delta Golf. Um, our visitor numbers in the first few weeks after uh, the second order was of August uh, 2006, uh, the visitor numbers went completely doolally over that school holiday period. Um, but when it all settled down afterwards, uh, sort of late September, early October, we were then on a sustained 40% increase uh, in visitor numbers over what we'd had before. And the growth rate was faster. Um, and I think yeah, that, that justified what was, at that stage, the biggest financial commitment we had ever made, and it was done without um, lottery funding. Previously, the, big, the, biggest, uh, the biggest thing we'd done with an exhibit was the purchase of the Napier Railton, which back in 1997 was £820,000, uh, £600,000-plus of which came from the lottery and the rest from, uh, from some fantastic supporters. But Concord, as it turned out, because, of course, not only did we get Concord itself, but they delivered... Uh, a truck with two big blue blobs on it, which was the remains of the simulator, which they'd very carefully chainsawed in two uh, to get them out of the building. Um, and by the time we'd put Concord itself back together, then with some help from uh, EPSRC, the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, and an amazing amount of help from the University of Surrey and a team of volunteers um, uh, under Gordon Roxburgh, by the time we'd done that, and then we'd rescued the Heathrow Gate Guardian 
40% scale Concorde. We'd, we'd spent, I think, in total across those three bits about 1.4 million quid, uh, which, was a, which was a massive uh, commitment, but it paid off, and we are still putting more than 40,000 people a year through a half-hour Concorde experience, and we're approaching half a million visitors through that experience, which means that Delta Golf has now carried more passengers than any of the rest of the BA fleet. <laughs> I, I happen to know it's 33% more than any of the BA fleet. I remember Stuart John coming to us in British Airways bemoaning the condition of Delta Golf and us saying it, but it's only had one careful owner, we told him, but he didn't seem to think about that. So that's Concorde, but what are your three greatest aviation highlights of your time here as director, or indeed perhaps back as being chair of the Friends. What are the other three? Set aside, Congo. Okay. What are the other three highlights? Um, definitely the Vimy. Um, uh, I mean, that was a truly extraordinary thing. The Vimy having, um, uh, which Peter McMillan uh, had built, John Lanou was the genius who actually put it together in California in the early 90s. And as I'd said, you know, uh, Vimy was the first to fly England to Australia, the first to fly England to South Africa, though they broke two aeroplanes to get there, um, and then the first to fly the Atlantic. And Peter and his team had restaged all of those flights. So this is the only Vimy that's done that. I mean, the Australia Vimy, uh, G-A-E-O-U, you know, got to Melbourne and they parked it there. Um, as I say, they broke uh, the two um, uh, Vimy's that went to South Africa. And of course, Alcock and Brown broke the transatlantic one by landing it in a bog. Uh, and so none of those aeroplanes that did those flights flew again. Uh, but Peter's Vimy did all three flights uh, and was still flyable at the end of it. And Peter had this amazing um, uh, sense of importance uh, in, in what that aeroplane then represented. And he, quite independently of us, we didn't have to persuade him, he persuaded us that the Vimy should have its rightful home here. You know, it, had, it had done its greatest flight, you know, which was flying the Atlantic non-stop. It took them two hours longer than it took Orcock and Brown, uh, even though it has engines nearly twice as powerful because um, of the tailwinds. Um, and Peter resolved that the Vimy didn't have anything left to prove, uh, and the best thing that could happen to it would be to come back to the home of the Vimy, uh, the production Vimy's built here, um, and he resolved to find a way of donating it to us, which he did. And that, that in itself was worth a book, how we managed to actually get the donation to work so it worked for him tax efficiently and donating something in the States for us. To, we had to set up a company in the States uh, to become the owner of the... We still have Brooklyn's Vimy somewhere on the books. Um, <laughs> you'll find it hidden in the accounts somewhere. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, and you know, uh, had help from amazing people, the ISTAT Foundation, who agreed to take it as a donation and then to donate it on, on to us. Um, yeah, and, and we got it here. Um, we managed against... Everything that the CAA threw against the CAA hated that aeroplane. And I remember sitting in front of the head of airworthiness uh, down at Gatwick, talking about trying to get the thing onto the British Register, and uh, arguing that it had proven because yeah, we couldn't 
put it on as a warbird because it wasn't a genuine warbird. We couldn't have it on the LAA scheme because it weighed five tons. Um, yeah, yeah, there was no way we were going to have to certificate it uh, as a public transport airplane and all this sort of thing. And I was arguing that the thing was reliable, it had proven itself even though it had been built as an experimental aircraft in the States and, and this guy, and I was saying, look, it's flown a thousand hours and it hasn't crashed, it's brilliant and this guy's saying, look, I'd far rather you brought me 20 of them that had flown 50 hours each and then I'd have a trend and then we could understand. So we're fighting all this sort of nonsense uh, um, and with the FAA trying to help us and the CAA trying to unhelp us and, uh, and the best thing I ever had was the deputy head of the FAA station at Heathrow talking to me about what we could do with this aeroplane and how safe it was and everything else. And the conversation went along the lines of, um, has it still got a valid certificate of airworthiness? Yes. Have you changed it at all since we last issued an FAA certificate of airworthiness? No. Right. He says, Mr. Wynne, as far as we're concerned, your aeroplane's an experimental airplane. If you want to strap a bathtub to the wing of your airplane and see how it flies, you go right ahead, strap that bathtub on and go flying. And that was the attitude from the FAA. And the CAA are saying, well, yeah, it's not safe. You can't prove it's safe. Well, no, we can't. But, and that's where we got. Um, but we managed to keep it in the air for nearly three years. And, the, and it's, uh, we got it back to, um, to Clifton, where Alcock and Brown crash-landed in 1919. And we had it overhead Clifton 90 years to the hour after they arrived there. Um, after a, another truly heroic flight, John Dodd and Clive Edwards flew it from Duxford to Galway uh, against the prevailing westerly wind six and a half hours to, to get it just that far. And then it came back, and then we did a final uh, season of, uh, of demos here, culminating in the most extraordinary flying display by John Dodd at Goodwood uh, at the Revival, uh, where he flew an entire flying display inside the confines of the circuit, and on two of the three days that we, we did that, we had the Napier Railton running around um, uh, the circuit underneath it. Um, well, that's one of Mike's three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, you have to say, having uh, the last heavy airliner built in this country, uh, the very last VC-10, started life as 5H MOG for East African Airways, uh, repossessed from them because they didn't pay the bills, ended up with the RAF as ZA-150, and to this day maintained in full operational condition if it had the radios uh, that the MOD nicked off it and the, um, uh, and the little glowing lights off the refueling things, it would be, uh, it would be fully uh, functional as a, as a refueling tanker. Still kept uh, live on the runway at Dunsfold. That's pretty special. And uh, the third? The third? I don't know. It's, it's very recent, but I reckon the sight of seven de Havilland moths on our little makeshift uh, airstrip uh, next door uh, last year for our, uh, for our aviation day, uh, to have more moths on the ground here than there'd been any time since 1939. And uh, I think uh, the moment that got me uh, was um, uh, under the uh, uh, under the direction of uh, Steve Bohill Smith, uh, who uh, worked with Gen Ty and others to get those seven aeroplanes here, we had a takeoff 
which I think you can see on uh, on uh, YouTube. I certainly videoed it, and it's on our system somewhere. We got six of those seven moths off the ground in a stream in less than a minute. Uh, and it was just so exciting to see that happen because we really had... Uh, aeroplanes flying back here you know, without, without the runway on which so much stuff had landed in the past. We used to have um, uh, flying days here, uh, fly-ins and so forth. We had a fairly fraught centenary flying display uh, and indeed a flying display for the, uh, for the centenary of the track the year before where the pilots just found it almost impossible to stay inside the, uh, the corridors decreed by the, uh, by the CAA and others because of how much building there's been around here. They were fairly hairy, though I will always remember Pete Teichman uh, busting every uh, altitude limit that had been set for us, going vertically upward in his Mustang at that 2008 <laughs> flying display, way, way above the 1,500 feet that we're meant to be playing with here. Least said soon is mandatory. Yeah. One last question before I hand back. Um, this one's with a, a trustee's hat on. Um, you've come to the end of a splendid tenure of stewardship as the museum's director and CEO, and you're handing the baton on. Uh, and you proudly wear your volunteering training badge, um, but you're also about to become our first vice president. So far this evening, we've been looking through the telescope in at the broad end, looking back 15 years. Mm. Let's spin the telescope round and ask you to Give us a view of what this wonderful place will look like in 15 years' time, uh, moving forward under Tamale's stewardship with your help and support as a vice president. What do you envisage Brooklands will be like in 15 years' time? By the way, did I mention the, uh, the fourth of those three, which was the aircraft factory? No, Simon nudged me in the ribs and told me to move on. No, um, looking forward. We're, um, yeah, uh, and I, Tamalee has clearly got to uh, have uh, the luxury. She'll have several weeks where she's allowed to think her own thoughts before uh, she, she, she has to start responding to all these challenges. Um, the, the, the big uh, challenges, clearly this place needs to stay alive and be more alive, um, you know, bringing more and more things into activity. Um, but... Yes, we've got that fantastic, unique collection of aeroplanes uh, that desperately need protecting from the elements. Um, and it's easy to say, but um, if you want to display them properly, not jumbling them all into a shed so that you can't really appreciate them, you need to build somewhere between seven and 8,000 square metres of roof uh, over the top of them to protect them from the wind and the rain and the sun and the crows. Um, uh, you know, that that is a massive, massive challenge, but it's so important that we save these things. You know, that's the last surviving vanguard out there. Um, you know, it's uh, it's one of the most important Concords. It's one of a handful of Vickers Vikings that have survived. You know, th these things are re really important, and once they're gone, they're gone. So they have to be uh, saved and protected. Um, Yes, we have a third of a mile of the banking, arguably the most important surviving bit. That is the sharpest corner on the original circuit on its quarter-mile radius. Um, it's uh, you know the 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 foundations of that banking are subsiding, uh, not helped by the post-war water main that uh, that runs through there, which sprang a leak a few years ago. Um, you know the the 
bridge abutments crumbling, all sorts of things, the tunnel abutments crumbling. That desperately is saving, as does the uh, that wonderful um, uh, vibration test that you do every day when you come down the uh, down the Campbell circuit. Yeah, you know, it's it's another bit of incredibly cheap concrete uh, laid by the Brooklands uh, track company that needs to be uh, conserved and restored before it uh, before it goes any worse. Um, Yep, we've now got a fantastic new workshop. We need more workshop space. We've got a fantastic new archive store. It's probably about half the size of the ultimate archive store that we need. Uh, you know, one of these days, the staff will rebel uh, at uh, trying to work in a 65-year-old uh, porter cabin with uh, with wonky floors. So it's like one of those House of Horror things. You know, you sort of wander <laughs> down the, the floor and you, know, you shave the top off your door every few weeks so that it will close. You know, all that sort of thing needs to be done. But we have, we have other challenges. We're, we're moving from the days when the volunteer, a lot of the volunteers here were people who literally collected their redundancy checks from British Aerospace when the factory closed and walked across the yard and became volunteers. Mm -hmm. And what we now have is those, those people are, alas, it's slipping away from us, and the, there's this fantastic challenge of of revitalising the, the the volunteer community and bringing in youngsters who won't have that direct relationship with building the aeroplanes here or whatever, but getting them imbued with this spirit that this is something really worthwhile. On the motor racing side, we've had to accept this already. Most of us did not see motor racing here at Brooklands, but we understand the importance of what happened here, and we've got to do the same thing on the other side. And yeah, My vision of the future is, yes, we've got this fantastic uh, cover built as, uh, as economically as possible to, to look after the aeroplanes. I see concor uh, concrete not replaced uh, as much as possible, but where if possible, restored, keeping as much of it as possible, even if we have to peel all the, the, the concrete panels up and lay new foundations under and lay the concrete back on, whatever we have to do to be able to do that, um, you know, to, to enhance the rest of the build, bring more of the buildings back into proper use, upgrade all the interpretation, bring it up to the standard of what we've got in the aircraft factory, but most of all, yeah, we've almost doubled the capacity for school kids to come here on curriculum-based visits. Um, and yeah, my, my vision is seeing not the 13,500 we did last year or the 25,000 we should be doing in a couple of years' time, but you know, 50, 100,000 school kids coming through here every day. And also, you know, the half million visitors, which is where, where we've got to get to. Thank you. So I've got two final questions to ask you, and then there may well be some questions in the audience. I think we've just got going to have a little bit of time for those. But my two final questions, Alan, are, first, you've worked awfully hard. Have you enjoyed it? I, I can't believe... Yeah, I, I always used to pinch myself when I was when I was running magazines like Flight, you know, that that people were paying me to go around the world and see interesting things and and <coughs> talk to people about interesting things. And all you had to do was just write a few things up when you got back. And and I still pinch myself. And 
can I really believe that the trustees let me loose on this place and let me have so much fun? And the fun hasn't just been driving the Napier Railton uh, and that sort of thing, though that has been the, the biggest corporate perk I've ever had. Uh, <laughs> yeah, being a, and, and yeah, I, to, 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 be, to be let out to drive that car and not just, not just around here, but you know, I, the, the day I drove it out onto the track at Mollary, the first person to drive it there since Freddie Dixon crashed it in 1934, uh, and to drive out and do a complete lap of the oval banking anti-clockwise the right way, you know, um, days like that are so, so special. I have loved it. Um, yeah, I, I can't believe how lucky yeah, a kid from a, from a backwater place in the backwater of New Zealand uh, ending up being allowed to run this place. Yeah, I have loved it, even when we've been wrestling with the problems of where's the money coming from and what are we going to do and, and the floodwaters are creeping up. Yeah, there's nothing more concentrating of the mind than lying on your back under Babs trying to connect up a tow bar and sensing the water coming towards you. <laughs> across the paddock. Um, well, you've had a good time for 14 years. What are you going to do now, Alan? How, I mean, you're going to be a vice president, which is obviously going to maintain your connection with this wonderful place, but you've got your Bentley to play with. How are you going to spend... You, you're a man of enormous, vigorous energy. What are you going to burn up that energy doing now? First of all, the Bentley, the poor old dear, is completely knackered. Um, I've had it for 33 years. I've done 100,000 miles in it. It's 85,000 miles since we last did an engine rebuild. Um, I started up in the morning and you hear the pistons going down the left-hand side of the bore, clunking across at the bottom and coming up the right-hand side. Um, yeah, and the oil pressure, you know, even if you look at it optimistically and you turn around like that so you're looking sideways at the gauge, the oil pressure is definitely lower than it was, the gearbox howls, the back axle howls, oil drips out, it's going to get a total rebuild. Right. Um, and that's, a, you know, uh, as you know, that's probably more than six weeks' work. Um, so that, that's, the, that's the big challenge. And, of course, to do that, first of all, I've got to tidy the garage and, uh, and all that sort of thing, all the things I've been putting off around the house uh, to do. Um, I'm uh, intending to spend a lot more time. Um, I've loved... Uh, my, my sort of second home in this country after the, the jobs that I've had has been the Vintage Sports Car Club, which is the most extraordinary organisation uh, making motorsport at its most excitable and exciting, accessible to, to every level uh, of society in this country. It's, a, it's an extraordinary organisation. I have loved, you know, even when I was moaning to uh, the then president about not getting a break uh, on a two-day race meeting at, at Alton Park, I, I've loved putting stuff back into it. I'm a, I'm a, a, a post chief and a MSA driving standards observer. I want to spend a lot more time uh, helping uh, in my capacity as, as a marshal on that. And of course, when I've got the Bentley back together, so that I feel confident about feeding at three and a half thousand revs continuously rather than just occasionally, I want to do a lot more competition with the Excellent. Bentley. Excellent. Um, and as the vice president, which I think is a new title, a new role. I mean, it's always very difficult for somebody who's been totally absorbed in an activity and then move away. Mm. The hardest thing is not to interfere. Mm. 
um, and to let the new guard that are coming after you do their job their way. So what is this role of vice president? But what will it, how do you see yourself being a vice president? It's a supporter. <clears throat> it's not an alternative management. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's being in the, being in the background um, and trying to help. Um, I have built relationships that go back a lot further even than the, you know, the since 2000, uh, from before 2003. People I've been talking to, relationships I've been building with people. Um, and some of those relationships have yet to yield the... Um, uh, the, the, the essential fruit, the, the, yeah. the financial support uh, yeah. and the other support that we need. Um, I want to be able to carry on to, to exploit those relationships, build them further to yeah. help when Tamalee comes forward with the, the next project that she's, she's got agreement Excellent. for. I want to be able to help to, to push those people mm. and to do what I can in the, in the background. And yes, um, uh, I have been granted permission to drive the Napier Railton uh, Festival of Speed this year. <laughs> That's the Vice President's perk. Yeah, yeah, well yeah. Uh, But yeah, that, uh, it's, it's really to support because mm. th this place needs all the support it can get. And uh, I was banging on the other night at my uh, retirement dinner about the failure, as I see it, of so much of the motoring community to get behind this place. Mm. You know, when, you, when you look at it, you know, why, why is the, the, the British industry so dominant in Formula One? You know, where did that come from? Why, why did all the immediate post-war Formula One teams find themselves based in Surrey? Yeah, uh, it's because you know, the, the, the support industry that that was built up here before the war was the support industry that was available after the war as well. And mm. that's why we're so good at building Formula One cars to this mm. day. Yeah. But we can't get the current Formula One lot to really throw their weight behind looking after this place. Um, and that's something that I, that, that I want to be able to concentrate on more, banging on some of these doors to get these people to understand that they really must. Just the, the people who glory in the fact that they're X works vintage Bentley is worth five times as much as, as an identical car that didn't have a works racing history. And they love the fact, and they love the fact it's worth so much money, and the only time we ever see them is when they bring the car here to get it photographed on the banking so they can get Bonhams to sell it for six times more than uh, 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 an identical four and a half is worth. You know, why can't we get these people to actually right. get behind us and, mm. and help us? Well, that's, that's going to be part of your job as, as the Vice President. Yeah, I can yeah. see you sharpening your claws. Ladies and gentlemen, have we got a couple of questions? Steve is yeah. there with, I think, a I microphone. I will get the microphone. And he's a disciplined chap, so he's only going to ask, allow you to ask about three questions. So, uh, and they've got to be rapid answers, Alan, OK? <laughs> <laughs> Any I don't mean that. Can we have the lights up, please? Any questions, ladies and gentlemen? Right, Martin, you would be right in the middle, wouldn't you? Of course. Now, don't ask Alan for any money or any favours. Well, funny you should say that. I was just wondering that um, now you've retired as director and CEO, 
uh, and got a little bit more time on your hands, um, whether, whether you're going to actually have time to buy me all the pints you've promised me over the years. <laughs> How did I know that was going to be the question? <laughs> I have bought, I think, one or two pints, but yes, um, uh, I hope that uh, instead of uh, grabbing a sandwich on the run, uh, I, I might, on a day here, actually take lunch in the bar and I'll happily buy you that pint, Martin. Martin, I'll make sure that happens, OK? <laughs> Martin, by the way, has been one of those volunteers who's done thick and thin, uh, being dragged around the country and beyond in transporters, uh, getting the getting the Napier Railton to places it needed to be, and pushing in the rain and all that sort of thing. Another question, ladies and gentlemen, may be... Don't be afraid. There's one right over on the far side oh, there. Gareth, well done. Thank you. Alan, you've talked about your Bentley. I just wondered if it had a particular history, if there's something you could tell us about it, other than obviously it needs a repair. Um, yeah, it was bought uh, uh, new uh, by a guy called Austin Cairns, who was a shipbroker in Glasgow. Um, it originally bore a Freestone and Webb barrel-sided five-seater touring coachwork, cream with red chassis. Um, it was uh, its only significant thing that I'm aware of that it did pre-war was that he took it on a three-month tour of Canada in 1935. I have the little plate that declares its weight in kilograms. Um, uh, it was rebodied during the war as a Woody station wagon to get the petrol coupon. Uh, bought post-war by a Glasgow GP, uh, Corey Henderson, who uh, rebodied it again uh, uh, as a uh, lightweight four-seater still on the original wheelbase with the original uh, bonnet, scuttle and wings. Um, and uh, when he died, it passed to his son Jim, uh, from whom I bought it in uh, 1985. Um, and uh, when... <laughs> I wish it had been in the days of the of the hundred pound per liter vintage Bentley. Uh, no, uh, they were five thousand one hundred pounds a liter uh, when I bought it. Uh, Fifteen and a half thousand quid I paid for it. Still doesn't seem very expensive. For no. The no, I, I, to me, you know, I, I got a free vintage Bentley um, and I paid for a restoration. Um, but yeah, it, it, and it's, it's just had given us so much enjoyment. Yeah. Don't sell it, will you? Certainly um, not. One more question, one maybe, question. ladies and gentlemen. It's done, it's done over 400,000 miles, by the way, mm -hmm. and still got the original uh, block and crankcase and so forth in it. I think we're probably out of questions at that point. Ladies and gentlemen, Alan Wynn. Thank you very much for being Ladies and, ladies and gentlemen, move into the next partner. I'd like to introduce our chairman of the BTM, Neil Bailey. Thank you, Steve. Uh, I hope you agree, Alan. That's quite a fitting tribute tonight that we've had to you. And uh, a lot about has been said, has been said before, but it doesn't do any harm to say it again. It's been a very enjoyable time that we've all had with you, and you're leaving, most importantly, a legacy here, which Tamley and others will build on. And you were, of course, chairman of the Friends for a long while. The BTM is the successor to the Friends. So we've obviously tried to think very hard about what we could give you. So we've consulted the membership and said we must mark this momentous occasion. 
There were a lot of suggestions, and a lot of them have gone on the cutting room floor. Um, there were some I was very personally attracted to, I must say, but I said, no, 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 we can't do that. I know someone suggested an Oxford English Dictionary with certain words highlighted because you didn't understand them. And uh, I won't go into all the words, but shall we say brevity was one of them, you know? Uh, we thought, no, we can't do anything like that. We've got to be gentlemen's law. So we thought the best thing to do was to allow you to come to the bar whenever you want to, to buy Martin copious amounts of beer. So we thought the best way to do that was to bring it with honorary membership of the BTM, which, as you know, is rarely bestowed. So we'd like to give you, on behalf of the members, first of all, honorary membership of the BTM, with two membership badges for you and your wife. And a certificate. And although you might have perhaps expected that or something like it, we wanted something a bit more personal. And as you know, our treasurer, who's just asked you a question there, um, Gareth, is a photographer who's now moved somewhere else. And um, Gareth, as a photographer, managed to get a picture recently. Here one it I is. prepared earlier. Here's one that Steve prepared earlier. It's um, a car you might have heard of on a piece of the track you might have heard of with someone we will recognise driving it. And it's interesting. That is the personal gift from all the members to thank you so much for everything that you've done. And we hope you'll find somewhere to hang the photograph. Uh, and we wish you very many happy years coming to do the same, to come here and drive the Napier Railton again, buy Martin drinks, and enjoy your company. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you very much. That means a great deal to me. Uh, uh, that, uh, yes. One uh, next thing, of course, those of you who've listened tonight probably think that Alan runs the museum and he's the director and the CEO. Absolute fallacy, he doesn't. So we thought we'd like to give a little gift to the person who really runs it, who's looked up. And could you come up, please, and take from <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Neil. Ladies and gentlemen, fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. Now, just to finalise the evening, the world-famous raffle, which we're ready to go. Um